Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Today I'm joined by my friend C.D. Glenn, the president of the PepsiCo Foundation and the global head of philanthropy at PepsiCo, and Jinya Truitt-Nakata, an expert in food security and an independent consultant. At the PepsiCo Foundation, C.D. oversees the foundation's strategic direction and continued focus on driving progress towards a more sustainable food system through its three core pillars, food security, safe water access, and economic opportunity. CD has a BA from Howard University and a master's level diploma in strategy and innovation from the Side Business School at Oxford University. And he's completed a Harvard Business School's Leadership for Senior Executives program. I've known CD for a long time. He's had a really interesting career that he'll have a chance to tell us about. It's really great to have him on the show today. So Jinya Truitt, is a global agricultural coalition builder, (laughs) expert in food security, strategic thinker, public speaker, and independent consultant. Jinya has 30 years of experience designing and implementing strategies that rally public and private stakeholders to work for the common cause on critical issues related to address hunger, equity, nutrition, biodiversity, agricultural resilience, and climate adaptation. Her track record of strategic vision, analytical rigor, and resource mobilization over three continents has created many high-impact and large multi-sector partnerships. She's got a bachelor's in international management in Spanish from Gustavus Adolphus College and an MA in international development from American University. So, C.D. and Ginia, I'm so glad to have both of you. I want you each to tell me a little bit more about your backgrounds other than me reading your bios. So let me start with you, Jinya. Tell us a little bit about how you got started in international development and how you got started in building multi-stakeholder partnerships. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here with you and and nice to be speaking alongside of CD. Well, actually, it's interesting. I come from a family of farmers, and so I think that's where my core interest in agriculture was really born. And as a result of that, I began working in the food and agriculture space internationally. I worked at Food and Agriculture Organization, the Inter-American Development Bank, the Nature Conservancy, and the International Potato Center, all very diverse organizations. But my objective was to get 360-degree understanding of the different angles these organizations come from to solve this problem, because I kept feeling like we were missing something in, in the bigger picture. And so that's it in a nutshell. Great. CD, how did you get started in international development and philanthropy? Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Jinya. Really great to be here. The question really is what makes me me in terms of this is my life. It's something I've been committed to since day one. My dad was in the military, so service was in our family and in my background. I grew up on military bases all over Western Europe. And got bit by the traveling bug. My mom has a degree in social work. And so from public service and my father and my mom's background in social work, I think, you know, three things have sort of shaped everything that I've done. It's like being of service to others, creating opportunities for other people, and really having the biggest impact as I can 
in my jobs and roles and responsibilities on other people. So service, opportunity, and impact have been the through line. And from a career standpoint, I went to Howard University for undergrad, as you mentioned, and going to Peace Corps shortly thereafter. And that just led to, again, a life of service in terms of grassroots development, went on to work for international nonprofits, worked for the Rockefeller Foundation in Nairobi, Kenya, leading our agricultural work, was in government where I led the U.S. African Development Foundation, U.S. ADF, and served in the Obama administration. And all of that really is what gave me a background of 25 plus years in grassroots development, the nonprofit arena, public service, and now have the opportunity to be in the private sector. So this has been a, a lifelong journey for me, and I'm really, really feeling like, hey, I'm just getting started. So I'm happy to be here, but we'll share more as we go forward. Well, that's for sure. I 100% agree with that. So, Jinya, what's it take? It strikes me as I listen to what you were saying that you need government, the nonprofit sector, the private sector to work together. What are some of the critical aspects to keep in mind when designing and implementing strategies to address hunger and agricultural resilience? First, I would say that it really has to be people-centric. I think that's key to sustainability. When we approach and we're looking at the broader food systems, I think a lot of times people forget that if people are hungry, they're not going to be able to implement a lot of the changes that we need. So in my experience, that's really key. Secondly, there really is no one size fits all. I enter every strategy design discussion, you know, with a blank page and kind of listen from that space of inquiry and the strategy really emerges from there. So I think it's important that we not have this idea that there is one way to do things and then that can be applied across the planet, particularly with regions just suffering from so many different issues. You just, you can't compare them. Finally, I would say when it does, when that strategy really does emerge and how to work together across the board with all of the different partners, it should be built on transparency, inclusion, and traceability, and ensure tangible measure results that everyone has aligned on. CD, you currently are the head of the PepsiCo Foundation and the global head of philanthropy of PepsiCo. It's a large multinational corporation, really has major impacts on food and food systems. When you listen to what Ginny is saying about you got to keep people first, there's no one size fits all. I suspect that a lot of that rings true for you and your colleagues at the PepsiCo Foundation. It does. It does. I think what Jen is saying is, is spot on and having that people-centered approach and what more can we do for people, but also for the planet is sort of central to PepsiCo. When people think about PepsiCo, it's important for everyone to think about PepsiCo as a, yes, a convenient food and beverage company, but we're also a convenient food and beverage company that's rooted in agriculture. People know many of our brands, whether that's Pepsi or Lay's or Doritos or Quaker Oats. Well, at the end of the day, Pepsi is about water and Lay's potato chips is about potato farmers and Doritos is about corn farmers. And obviously Quaker Oats is about you know oat farmers. And so the people who are growing our products is just as important as the products themselves. And we source 25 different crops for more than 7 million acres across 60 countries, Dan. So we are in the communities with people who are growing crops that we turn into great products around the world. And that scale and the size and the capabilities that we have, it's a great opportunity, but it's also a responsibility for us to do more good in the communities and for the people who are growing the products and how we source and how we make and how we move, how we sell these products are really just as important as the products themselves. And so we embarked upon a journey 
And it's really an end-to-end -end transformation of our business to be more positive, to be what we call PepsiCo positive for people and for planet with sustainability and human capital at the center. So I think that that's really, really the takeaway that PepsiCo is a company that's committed to, yes, great performance, but to people and to operating within planetary boundaries. So how in your mind, CD, if I think about Give some examples of how that's playing out at PepsiCo, because you obviously there's any number of different streams of work, whether it's in the water space or certain agricultural products. Give us some examples of this. No, great. Thanks for the opportunity. And I, I would say, you know, it starts with us thinking about what we do, our agricultural footprint and being positive in that. And so looking at having this operational model that has us have over 7 million acres of agricultural land under cultivation how we actually farm and how we work with farmers. And so looking at agriculture being sustainable, inclusive and regenerative, and this regenerative transformation is really important. And then having a positive impact on lives and livelihoods of farmers and a commitment to impact the lives of 250,000 growers and farmers in our supply chain. You know, from the foundation standpoint, I think about the great work that we do in food and beverage and in performance of the company. And I think about the flip side of that, in all these places that we operate, there is food insecurity, there is lack of access to safe water, and there's places where inequity exists. And so the foundation is helps the company show up again for people in planet in these communities where we live, work, and serve. And under the food security work alone, let me give some examples there. So three areas when we think about food insecurity at the foundation, we're trying to address hunger, we're trying to address malnutrition, and we're seeking to address just sustainable, inclusive, regenerative agriculture. In hunger programs, we know at PepsiCo, we have the opportunity and the capability to create equitable access. We know how to make and move things. And so if we know how to make and move things, we can make and move food and address hunger and malnutrition in, in different ways. And in hunger, in the US and around the world, we have an initiative, a program, a project called Food for Good. And this is where we're sourcing, we're packing, and we're delivering meals to, particularly in the US, to address childhood hunger to children who are in school and even when they're out of school. So this is after school program, meals for that. This is on the weekend, meals for the weekend. This is during the summer. COVID-19 showed us a lot about the importance of school and childhood feeding, if you will, and the connection between that. Because when there was no school, kids went hungry. And so, you know, the foundation is sort of set up to have the capabilities with PepsiCo to deliver meals to children and to address childhood hunger. And so creating that equitable access is really critical to that. The other thing I would say in terms of malnutrition is we have the capabilities to create products. You know that we love, the prep, you know, we put smiles on people's faces, every bite and every sip, there's a smile that comes on someone's face. But here's the reality around malnutrition is that some people don't have access to nutritious foods. And so in Mexico, we have a program called Quaker Creche, which is together we grow. And literally it's about addressing malnutrition for children ages two to five, and it's giving them a ready to use supplementary food. And this is where we created a cookie, a biscuit, if you will, that's highly, highly caloric. So it has a high calorie count, but it actually addresses mild to moderate malnutrition and, and addresses stunting and wasting. And we're using our capabilities to create nutritious meals and products so that kids can grow up healthy. Same thing, another program in India, which is also with the Quaker brand, and so just using our capabilities to address some of these global challenges as we see food insecurity rising around the world, it's really a commitment for PepsiCo and the PepsiCo Foundation. CD, talk about, it's, as I listen to these examples, these are really interesting. In each of these, you have to work with other private sector partners, logistics partners, tech companies, packaging partners. 
You also have to work in partnership with local governments or national governments. You likely have some sort of maybe nonprofit partner who helps kind of deliver, make this happen. Could you talk a little bit about how you approach that in terms of you guys have unique convening authority. You often have good relationship with governments. What strikes me is that you need to bring other folks along with you to make these incredible partnerships happen. A hundred percent. We definitely believe in collaboration. We know that people think we may be big enough or bold enough to go it alone, but we know that's not sustainable. And we know we are all bigger, better, stronger together. These are systemic change challenges. And so we need to bring all elements of the system together. And probably three C's, Dan. So one, having this collaboration mindset. We always want to collaborate. And we talk about we'll collaborate and partner with anyone who shares our values and our commitment. That's across the board. Private sector partners, again, if you share our goals and our values and our commitment to change, we want to collaborate with you. So we definitely believe in doing more with others. And we also believe that business can be and should be a force for good in the communities where we live and operate. Then I think it's really important that we contribute, that we're giving of something. And typically, that's giving of something that we uniquely have and using our capabilities. If we're a company that has logistic prowess or has the manufacturing prowess or has the supply chain efficiencies, bringing that to these social challenges is really critical that we're bringing not just a checkbook. It's not just the money. It's not, yeah, it's not just the money. We actually have capabilities that we can give. And so, yes, we can write a check, but also we can make change by bringing the entire company and our capabilities to that. So being a real contributor beyond this quote unquote check writing, we want to be about change making. And then I think the last piece, Dan, is really about co-creating. So we don't have this not admitting here mentality. We sit down with communities, we listen to them, we learn from them, and then we let them lead in a lot of instances and show us where we need to go and where we need to plug in. And so being locally led is really important to us. As a global company with global resources, we want to operate in this bottom-up driven perspective with communities. But collaboration contributing and co-creating with communities is critical for us in partnerships. I love this. So, Jinya, I want to come back to you. So, Jinya, you were talking about no one size fits all. You were talking about being people-centric. As you listen to this in these three Cs, can you just reflect a little bit about what CD has just talked about? And in terms of from your perspective, having worked on these issues for 30 years, I suspect you've got some reflections on this. Yes, thank you, Dan. I'd like to talk a little bit about what CD said in terms of the funding and the co-creation, but I also want to add another angle there, and that is when you look at partnerships and you know organizations like Pepsi and food nag organizations in general, you know, you want long-term sourcing commitments, right? You're looking for, you know, who's sourcing. And I think when you look at partnerships in this space, a lot of times organizations enter into partnerships as if it were a transaction. And partnerships that are transactional are not sustainable. Partnerships should be viewed in that same scope of that long-term relationship that you're looking to create to really make a difference in that community. I know organizations that have invested in NGOs and others. You know, I think a lot of organizations make the mistake that when they think it's about the organization, but when their key point of contact moved on, they did too. And so I think that's something that we forget in this broader space. Going back to what CD was saying, one of the things that I see is that, you know, all of food security, climate change, all of these issues, they take a lot of money. And when you look globally, you see there's always a a little bit of like, well, where are we going to invest? There's limited funds, you know, so many issues between health crises and et cetera, et cetera. But I, I really feel like 
it's not more funding that we need at this time. It's more collaboration. I think there's a lot of misaligned funding because organizations aren't collaborating. And when I say that, it's really in that pre-competitive space. It's really looking at how can we co-create not just between organization and community, but how can we co-create it as, as a development community and really break organizations out of their silos? Because I can tell you a thing or two about those silos and how it impacts the viewpoint of organizations really trying to work on building these coalitions. So I want to also, Ginny, I want to ask you a little bit about the role, particularly of governments. So you've worked with multilateral institutions I think it's important we don't underestimate the importance of public sector and including the multilateral sector. And what role do those institutions play? Because sometimes some public sector institutions, some multilateral institutions are a little bit funny about the private sector. Could you talk about this? Oh, yes. (laughs) So early in my career, when I was at FAO, actually working in, in Central and Eastern Europe, it was rather funny because FAO was short on funding. Food security was not a priority really back in the day. And so They asked us to go out and, you know, they're like, we need additional funding. I actually secured the first ever private sector contribution, and it was from actually a rural cooperative bank in Spain. And then I went back to FAO and said, okay, here's some funding. Like, well, we don't have any means of accepting this money. Well, I mean, that's your problem, right? You got to figure it out. You asked us to get, you know, if you're going to really create that umbrella and you're going to reach out to work collaboratively with private sector organizations, then there's a thing or two that needs to be figured out. And there have been across the board, there's always a concern about reputational risk. There's always a concern about perhaps not as much with organizations like PepsiCo, but you see it a lot with the Syngentas, the Bayers, the Cortevas of the world, or, you know, ex Monsanto, you know, reputational risk, et cetera. Well, at the end of the day, There's huge reputational risk when you're looking at governments, too. I mean, one of the things that doesn't often get said, even in that multilateral space, and though it's so evident, is corruption. So how do you create that? And I think, finally, when people have turned, the private sector relationships with multilateral has taken a turn. And I think now they really see it as that driver, as that core driver to success. But there's always a concern around, are we greenwashing? You know, if we partner with them, is that greenwashing all of the damage they've done? Well, I just, in my opinion, there's got to be kind of a a reset button here, because if you're going to give public sector that's made incredible amount of mistakes the benefit of the doubt, well, I think the same should be true of the private sector. And I think we're we're really getting there. CD, if I think about what you're talking about earlier, you need various private sector stakeholders. I mean, those smallholder farmers are private sector actors, if you will. There's a whole lot of logistics companies and including Pepsi. There's food processing and packaging and marketing, which you all do. And then you work with local kiosks and other, you know, there's a whole private sector ecosystem to make all this, most of the food that we eat, most of the food in the eat, we eat in the world is sold in grocery stores. So I'm assuming that for the most part, when you engage with multi-sector organizations and with governments that, for the most part, they're willing to find ways to collaborate with you? I'd say yes. And, you know, I'm fortunate that I've sat on both sides of the table, if you will, in having spent a lot of my career 
in grassroots development in nonprofit sector and public service in the public sector and then coming to the private sector. I can tell you, I spent, and you know, we spent a lot of time together, Dan, we, you know, pushing for the private sector to be included at the table, but now the private sector is at the table and how do we have the private sector play its unique role in the space? And I think that's what's really important is that everyone sort of play in their lane and bring their capabilities, but ultimately it's how it lands in communities, how it lands with people. And so, you know, I think that there's definitely the opportunity to collaborate more. Some key words that Jenny said around co-creation, about pre-competitive alliances, about bringing the different capabilities. We care about smallholder farmers, right? We care about smallholder farmers. And so when we work with a large NGO like CARE International, where we have a five-year program with them to impact 5 million female farmers, that's just not a nice to do. We need those female farmers to be successful if we're going to grow, quote unquote, potatoes, if you will, in Egypt. And we're going to do that with CARE being this local community connector that's not sort of saying PepsiCo is trying to do something for the communities. It's really with and through the communities, through an NGO like CARE, through the private sector's capabilities, and we're ultimately going to be the market. And so that is what's also really critical is that the private sector does play a unique role but also the government as well. And so I remember, you know, being in the nonprofit world and always thinking about sustainability is where the government takes over or the market dynamics take over. And now being in a situation to really see that both are needed, but also that local community ownership is needed for it to be lasting. And that's where the development mindset of short-term projects and these time-bound initiatives, that's not how people live in the, these women in these communities are going to be there forever. They're going to be long after the AID five-year program or three-year program is gone, but guess what? PepsiCo and the private sector is going to be there as well because we are going to, in perpetuity, want to increase the level of agricultural productivity if we're talking about agriculture or economic development, if talking about economic development, we're never going away. And so therefore, this is where government and the private sector play a unique role in terms of sustainability with the community leading first and foremost. So let me ask each of you, you know, putting these multi-stakeholder collaborations together is hard. And I suspect there's sort of some common themes of things that make this more challenging. So, Ginny, could you start with, tell me, what are some of the common themes that you sometimes find are challenging about building these partnerships? And then, C.D., let me ask you the same question. So I would say that C.D. really pointed out a number of them where there used to be this mentality of sustainability is public sector. And I think Per your earlier question, Dan, there still is some of that in the background. And a lot of the public sector organizations approach the private sector thinking it's a money bag. And it's not. The majority of this funding will continue to come from the public sector. I would say private sector is more of the innovation. It's more of that pushing forward. It's more of that, you know, I'd say the push for regenerative agriculture systems came a lot from that more private sector space before the multilateral space, because there's, you know, a direct impact on how food is grown and the sustainability. And that's a risk. That's a risk when you're sourcing these products all the time. So in putting these partnerships together, I'd say, I, I mentioned before a little bit about organizational silos, but it is hard for these organizations to step out of those silos and to really come at it from that clear creative space. That is the number one most difficult aspect of creating coalition. You know, really having a common vision that everyone can align on. I think that's the number one most critical aspect. Secondly, when you're working together across that spectrum, there's got to be a fundamental trust 
or you're not going to get to that space of vision. So there has to be a trust, a transparency, and there has to be a full alignment on what it is you're looking to achieve. And that's when I was talking about endorsing each other's goals, you know, really coming into it from that space. Another thing that we really have to keep in mind is that when I talk about measurable results, there are a lot of broad coalitions out there in the food security space, the UN and others. But what have they achieved? I mean, I think unless we actually align on not activities, you know, we can have a lot of opportunity to talk, but we actually align on what the outcomes are we're trying to achieve and people actually have that skin in the game and they contribute to that. I don't think we're going to actually move the needle. I have seen it and I've built it with organizations across the spectrum really leads to that, those successful engagements. So Cedia, as you approach these multi-stakeholder partnerships with the three C's, you sometimes also have to deal with some of these underlying challenges that Ginny has talked about, trust, alignment. Sometimes this approach of three C's helps you kind of get the alignment, and it may also help you build trust, getting an agreement on how you measure success and how you talk about success. Talk about some of the challenges and how you approach those challenges in building these multi-stakeholder partnerships from a Pepsi perspective. No, this is great. Ginny literally laid it out and it was super clear and, and inspiring and so instructive for all of us. I think, you know, some of the watchouts from a big company or even a big government institution is we do like to think scale, we like to think global. The watch out there is sometimes we need to really be thinking in local because a lot of the problems are going to show up in local communities. And so they're not cookie cutter. And so you, it's hard to sit in Washington, D.C. or New York City or London or Brussels or wherever and sort of think about, yes, global problems, but local solutions. So the watch out and the lesson learned is really to think local, have a real local approach to the work. The other thing is to almost not be bold enough. And this is where you're thinking, do no harm. These uh, words of old, Daniel, do no harm. And having nice to have programs and projects. Right now, we do need to be bold. And from a company like PepsiCo, we need to be leading. We are the, one of the world's largest food and beverage companies, and we have a responsibility to be bold, to do big things and make big changes. And so really having that ownership of being leading, and that's where I think having those public commitments and really being out in front and sort of saying, this is what we're gonna do, and then deliver on that. And so it is about risk taking. It's a little, being leading is taking a little bit of a risk and trying to be catalytic and bring others along. And so I don't think we've done enough of that, whether it's private sector's role in development or even government sometimes. I think we're sort of sometimes stuck in this sort of do no harm, nice to have. There's some, you know, a lot of risk aversion to transformational change to bring about that change. So, you know, local leading. And the, and the last thing I say is be lasting. And what do I mean by that? They're sustainable solutions. These are not time bound, whether from a developmental standpoint, these are not time bound to, to election cycles. These are not time bound to quarterly earnings. Like if we're going to really change communities and we have to think for the long term, and that is to be lasting. And this is thinking through the sustainability agenda of the endeavor and having it be something that can go on without our support or go on with support changing. And so those three things for PepsiCo and the PepsiCo Foundation in terms of how we're able to show up for communities where we live, where we work, where we serve, where we play, where we're able to have real transformational positive impact on communities. And when we are putting the local bottom up driven perspective first, when we really are owning the fact that we are big and bold and we have a big responsibility. And so we wanna be leading in our programs and catalytic and bringing others along with us and following others leads as well. 
and then ultimately being lasting that we're not in the short term quick win mentality that we really are trying to change the system and we know it's going to be hard and we know we're going to fail fast to succeed sooner where we really take in that mindset of really being lasting in the communities where there's a local ownership of the endeavors even though they're big global goals that there's real local ownership and they're taking it you know with our support but we're doing it not to them but with and through communities these are the things that keep us out of the challenges of short-termism and development projects that end up as white elephants or that end up being less impactful than they could have been if we would have really aimed harder and tried to be a real catalyst for change. So, Ginia, I want to ask each of you a final question, which is, so, Ginia, you've been in the multi-stakeholder partnership space for a long time. There are reasons why approaching big challenges requires a multi-stakeholder approach. Talk about why in the food space this continues to be really important and make the case as to you know what's at stake if we don't get this right <laughs> easy questions to answer Dan. easy questions <laughs> easy questions so in terms of the importance of the multi-stakeholder space so one-on-one -on -one partnerships are important they contribute a little bit here and there but unless we're actually going to form a broad multi-stakeholder partnership, really like the concept I've been working on of, of a food security hub that comes together prior to any kind of engagement where you align on how you're gonna end hunger together, that takes actors from across the board. It takes all of those different angles working together. I'll give an example, having worked at a bank, you're surrounded with economists and they really come to the problem from that economic perspective. And then I moved on to organization like TNC and you have environmentalists and they're coming at it really from that angle. And then I moved to, you know, a research organization. So you get the idea, like private sector, same thing. They're coming at it from very, very diverse angles. And this can be hard to bridge, but it's fundamentally important that those perspectives obviously with that very local critical human centric focus come into play. I think without those multiple viewpoints coalescing together and that honoring and respecting those distinctions, we are not gonna be able to solve this problem. So I think that is fundamental to how we move forward. If we don't build partnerships, what's at stake if we don't get this right? You know, it's more of the same. When I entered the space of development, you know, over 30 years ago, and I was getting my graduate degree, I thought I was working myself out of a job. Like that was the goal, right? The goal was- We all said that, yeah. Right, right? like this was, yeah, I didn't know what I was gonna do later, but that was gonna be a temporary gig. But when I look back, I remember in particular, we had uh, one assignment in grad school, we were looking at a big assignment through USAID and the work that they'd been doing in Haiti and the Dominican Republic and deforestation. And there's this demarcation right there of trees. If you fly Haiti to the DR and the DR, there's a thing called a tree. And in Haiti, there isn't. I've flown over the Amazon, seen the same thing. We have not advanced. We have not. There's been a lot of knowledge built. You know, we've learned a lot from um, the pros and the cons of the green revolution of how to work in areas of malnutrition, looking at everything from biofortified foods to how we address junk foods. Like there's all of the, we've done a lot of learning, but we have not accomplished what needs to be accomplished. And we're kind of out of time at this point. I think climate change is really kind of pushed us and the spike in hunger, the unfortunate spike in hunger post-COVID has pushed us to demonstrate 
all of the weaknesses in this food system, the cracks, I think the cracks are no longer cracks. The cracks are like pieces are falling apart. And I don't mean to be negative because I really feel like we almost needed this in order to propel us forward, but that's what's at stake. It is a tremendous opportunity to actually co-create a food system that works for everyone. And for me, I'll just finish by saying there's a harbinger of that success. When I look at working, you know, in the Andes and there's all of these superfoods that are grown in the Andes, aside the 4,500 different, you know, varieties of potatoes <laughs> in Peru that you have quinoa, you have amaranth, you have taro, you have so many different superfoods available. And in the same communities, the same places where these are the native crops, right? The malnutrition is rampant. You can look at the child infant anemia rates. You can look at the stunting. You can look at, and it's unfathomable that those core places where this incredibly nutritious food is available, that those regions suffer from the highest malnutrition of any place on the planet. And so to me, that is a harbinger. When that's fixed, our food system will be fixed. But CD, you guys are one of the largest food companies in the world. You are one of the largest buyers of food in the world, but you still need to work in partnership with others. Some people would say, well, you know, aren't you big enough? You can do this alone. I think the obvious answer is no, but I think it's important for folks to hear that. And there's a reason why you approach these big challenges in a multi-stakeholder way as you've described earlier. So what, talk about why you continue to do this. And then what are the stakes if we don't get this right? So I love it, Dan, the stakes if we don't get it right. I mean, it's literally a too big to fail moment for the global food system. I want to be cliche and saying that it is, the issue is too big. So failure is not an option. But here's the thing, Dan, it's also the challenges are too big for us to win alone. There's no one entity that can solve these challenges alone. And so I look at this from why PepsiCo, the PepsiCo Foundation, why we think it's so important for us to be in this space and to be a leader in this space of a sustainable food system and that being part of our, our pillar being PepsiCo positive. So one is the credibility of we're an actor in the space. We actually are a food company who wants to do more good for more people and to be a part of the solution. So stepping up and bringing our credibility as an operator, as an actor in the space, I think is really critical. Then there's these public commitments, which really signals intentionality. We have real intention around operating within planetary boundaries, about being net zero, being net water positive, really sort of putting it out there and being really intentional as a company, just like we can state earnings and we can state profits. We can also state what good we're going to do for society and for people and planet. So that credibility linked with our intentionality around these issues. And then we actually join others to really create a self-reinforcing accountability to these issues that we really are accounting for what we're saying. We're literally walking the talk in a true way. And so PepsiCo understands the power of our own movement in the space, but we know we want to be a catalyst and bring others along. And let me give you an example. In 2021, PepsiCo pledged $100 million through 2030 as part of the Zero Hunger Private Sector Pledge. So we put our money, quote unquote, where our mouth is and made this commitment of $100 million to the Zero Hunger Private Sector Pledge, along with our sustainable agriculture team. And this pledge is aimed at training farmers, helping strengthen agriculture production, increasing crop yields, and supporting 
the journey toward a more resilient food supply. So having that financial commitment, having the company come along is really important. Now we can say this, now it's 2023. We're now one of 44 companies that have pledged a promising over $500 million now in 47 countries as part of this pledge. So the reality is, Dan, alone, we can only do so much, but together we can do so much more. And that is really the message that I want everyone to hear that we can do more together and we are stronger together as a global community, those committed to addressing global food insecurity, but creating a sustainable food system. Look, this has been great. CD, Jinya, I really appreciate you both taking the time to be with us. This has been really interesting. Thanks so much for your partnership. So thanks so much for the time. Let's do this again. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 